Yeah, it's been many years and many failures in the making to get something of this ambition done and to set a new standard for state action. That was Kevin Tempest with the Low Carbon Prosperity Institute. He's one of our guests on this podcast. Welcome to The Future Ocean. What can carbon policy do for the oceans and our fisheries? This is a podcast for coastal Alaskans. Talking about carbon policy is not exactly what most people do in their free time, but making energy from the sun or the wind is pretty exciting. And to do that on a grand scale, you need policy. Oceans comprise 70% of the Earth's surface, and they give us fisheries, food, jobs, and a livable world. Oceans take up about 30% of the ever-increasing carbon dioxide that is released into the atmosphere. They also absorb 90% of the excess heat trapped in the atmosphere by greenhouse gases. As a result, the ocean is changing. So we're talking about policy that could accelerate the transition to clean energy and help stem the tide. Stay with us. The Future Ocean Podcast is an informational discussion sponsored by the Alaska Ocean Acidification Network. I'm your host, Maggie Wall. In the third episode, we talked with two economists, Mark Hafstead and Yoram Bowman. They give us an overview on carbon pricing and the two types of pricing systems, the cap-and-trade model and the carbon fee or tax model. This is episode four, and we'll explore the cap-and-trade system with a focus on two programs, the 10-year-old California program and the brand-new Washington State one set to go into effect in 2023. First, we'll hear from Tony Cerna, Strategy Director for Citizens Climate Lobby and a founder of California's CalFact, a group formed to improve carbon pricing and support various climate solutions in California. He will walk us through the basic mechanics of a cap-and-trade system. Remember, the cap is the limit on carbon emissions set by the government. An emissions allowance is like a permit, usually sold at auction, to produce carbon emissions. One allowance equals one ton of carbon. The trade component is the market for buying and selling allowances. Let's say you're a utility and you didn't buy enough allowances in the auction for a given period. You can buy more from another company that has more allowances than it needs. Here's Tony Cerna. Cap and trade is a system of trying to lower emissions uh, using market-based incentives. And so it's based on the principle that climate change is real, we need to reduce emissions, and that the free market can help us find the best ways to reduce those emissions if we provide businesses and households the right incentives. And so what a cap and trade system does is it sets a steadily declining cap on emissions that is going to meet your climate goals. And then it allows polluters to find ways to avoid polluting, reducing their emissions, or they would have to pay for pollution allowances. So as the cap declines, the price of polluting goes up and there's more and more incentive to avoid that pollution and keep the emissions down below that cap. Um, one of the keys of a cap and trade system is that it allows you to set specific emissions levels that, that meet your targets. And then it leaves the price up to the market. So the price can sometimes then be uh, changes from year to year and might be volatile depending on um, how the economy grows, how their demand is, 
uh, what technologies come online. Uh, and there are, you know, so there's pluses and minus there. You get um, the sense of the notion of emissions certainty, but you do not get price certainty. The state of California has had a cap and trade program in place since 2013. Tony Cerna, a close observer of the system, describes how it works. So California is the only state in the country right now that has a cap and trade system that governs most of its economies. There's a steadily declining cap. There are auctions each quarter where they auction off allowances that uh, so businesses that emit uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are required to buy those allowances and turn them in uh, each calendar year. There's a trading market so they can, if you didn't buy enough at the auction, you can then buy them from other uh, entities. And there is that there are price controls on the auction system. So there's like a floor price at the base of what the, what the lowest possible price might be for those allowances. And then there are price collars that uh, will keep the price from ramping up too quickly in the event that there's um, a surge in demand for those allowances. There's a whole bunch of different other parameters that are part of the system. There are carbon offsets that uh, emitters can buy rather than reducing their own emissions. They can pay for offsets for let's say forestry or agricultural programs that are promising to reduce emissions of an equivalent amount. Uh, Entities can bank their allowances for multiple years. There are uh, some allowances are given for free to different entities in the system that uh, where there's concern that they might face undue competition from uh, competitors outside the state. So there's a lot of different parameters that, you know, and it gets really into the weeds on some of the details. uh, But, you know, at the base assumption, it's that, you know, every emitter has to buy enough allowances to cover all of the emissions that they are producing, and they can buy those at auction, they can trade those with each other, and, um, and then there's that steadily declining cap that makes it so that the emissions go down every single year. The California cap and trade program has not been without its problems. Tony Cerna explains the situation in which the state issued too many emission allowances and failed to adjust the program in a timely way to maintain the integrity of the emissions cap. One of the challenges that the California system has is a problem with what economists call oversupply. So when the program was first set up, they estimated what the current emissions were in the state, and they estimated on the high side. And then the economy crashed in 2008. And so since then, uh, the economy has already been under the emissions cap without anyone really doing anything to, to actively reduce emissions. And so because of that, there were the there was there were excess allowances available on the market that were bought up by um, investors and, and some of the polluting industries. And so they're now able to use those allowances that they bought in the past to allow them to continue emitting above the cap as the cap is coming down. And so because of that initial condition and then the inability to adapt to the economic uh, crash in 2008, it means that the California system is not really achieving the emissions goals that it appears to be uh, setting out to do. Uh, this, you know, so even though right now California is meeting its emission goals, there's a the way the system is designed, it's unlikely to meet all of its goals in the timeframe of the 2030 targets that it set. 
Another problem with the California system is a common feature of cap-and-trade systems called carbon offsets. In California, companies can choose not to buy an allowance and instead buy a carbon offset for less money. The offset is a way for, say, a refinery to pay for another entity somewhere else to reduce emissions. The offset allows the refinery to continue emitting a certain amount of greenhouse gases equal to the emissions avoided by the offset. It might be easier to understand it this way. Some other entity is going to produce less emissions so that you can produce more. Tony Cerna explains further. Another big concern about the California system are the offsets. Offsets are something that, you know, were originally put into the system for a couple different reasons. Some of them good reasons, some of them challenging reasons. Uh, some of the good reasons are it makes sense to pay people to, to reduce their emissions. It makes sense to, to have there be an economic incentive for people to preserve their forests, to capture methane off of a landfill, to uh, reduce emissions from their uh, animal agriculture or from their ethanol plant. These are all good things. These are things that we should be putting money towards to help people do this and to give them the incentive to do it. But by taking the, that money from the cap and trade system as a, in a way that allows an existing em emitter to continue emitting um, in exchange for, you know, I can keep emitting this ton of carbon dioxide because you're going to be reducing one ton of, ton of carbon dioxide. What you get into is a really tricky validation problem. If there's any reason why the, uh, the one ton of emissions that you got credit for is not 100% real, then we're actually increasing the carbon in the atmosphere because we've allowed someone to continue burning fossil fuels uh, at a power plant or at a refinery while uh, we are preserving trees. Let's say that those trees were already going to be preserved or that methane was already going to be captured. Or we thought there were you know, 200 trees per acre on your land, but there's really only 150 trees per acre on your land. And so any of those kinds of things that make um, an offset not perfect means that there's the potential for uh, emissions that are going beyond the cap. I would love to see other ways for our society, for the government to find ways to uh, invest in, in reducing emissions in those other areas, in agriculture, in forestry, in preserving ecosystems. But I think that doing it through offsets, uh, there's definitely some problems with the way that's being handled right now. Given the complexity and challenges associated with the California cap and trade program, we asked Tony Cerna, what are the strengths of this kind of program? One of the best things about the cap and trade system is that it, it does allow you to set a specific emissions trajectory. So if you say we want to get to net zero by you know, 2040 or 2050, you set that cap. You're very clear. That's our goal. Everyone's on board with that. And then you set the targets related to that. And so that is a plus. I'd say the main benefit of a cap and trade that, that, that advocates really prefer is that, is that they can set that emissions target and it gives them that sense of emissions certainty. Analysis of the California cap and trade program shows that much of the state's success at reducing emissions is attributed to many complementary regulations. These include things like a low carbon fuel standard, and there are requirements for utilities to generate more electricity from renewable sources. California also has a measure to advance zero emission vehicles. And we note that revenue from the cap-and-trade emission auction has made a lot of these things possible. 
Tony Cerna reflects on California's results. So far, the results from cap and trade systems have been a little bit mixed. In California, it's unclear how much they've been contributing to the emissions reductions because emissions are going down in California, but there's a lot of other policies that that people see as doing most of that work. Now, that's going to shift in the future between in the next decade, cap and trade is going to have to do a lot more work. And so we're going to see first for um, we're going to see over the next decade how effective of a policy it is in California. Thank you to Tony Cerna with the Citizens Climate Lobby for that helpful description of the basic moving parts of a cap-and-trade system. To sum things up, experts caution that there are certain features of cap-and-trade systems that can strengthen or weaken a program's success at driving down carbon emissions. How constraining is the cap? How lenient are the rules? And how nimble are the managers when changes are needed to stay on course with targets for emissions reduction? Now we turn to our other guest, Kevin Tempest from Seattle, who will dive into the new Washington State cap-and-trade program, including lessons learned from California. My name is Kevin Tempest, and I am research and development scientist at the Low Carbon Prosperity Institute. Um, We've been working in Washington carbon and climate policy since around 2015, 2016, when the first of two initiatives um, that would appear in, in subsequent elections basically uh, appeared on the ballot. So we've been really engaged in this carbon pricing um, discussion for the last four or five years at the the state level. In 2021, Washington State created a cap and trade program, or as they have defined it, a cap and invest program. Washington State is focused on using the revenue from auctioning off allowances to advance specific clean energy priorities. Its goals for reducing carbon emission match the Paris Climate Accord. That is preventing global warming from exceeding 1.5 degrees centigrade compared to pre-industrial temperatures. To achieve that, the science requires a 45% reduction in global emissions by the year 2030 and net zero emissions by 2050. The architecture of the plan goes after the majority of the state's emissions, tying it to that um, reduction pathway, those targets. It's about 75% of the state's emissions. And and the overarching architecture is really what is called a cap and invest program. So capping emissions on those large emitters that work out to around 70, 75% of the state's emissions, setting a trajectory to reduce those emissions over time to meet those 2030, 2040, 2050 limits. And so there is authority all the way out through 2050, which is setting kind of a new standard of of ambition. If you look at action in the United States, that long-term authority is a really key piece here. So reducing those emissions over time, raising revenue as part of that. So raising revenue that's tied to um, all emissions that occur over that period of time and, and reinvesting those in several priority areas that I think we'll probably touch on a little bit later in the conversation. Washington State is a little bit unique relative to a lot of the country in that our power sector emissions are, are quite low thanks to really robust hydro power industry within within the electricity. So transportation emissions are really where the bulk of the program coverage, you know, about half of it, I believe, would occur. And so that that includes all transportation fuel, 
on road, particularly transportation fuel supplied in the state. It also would include natural gas supplied to, to homes and businesses. And then also large emitting industrial facilities would be, would be covered under the program as well. For the fishermen among our listeners, we looked into how this will affect the sale of diesel to the fishing fleet. It turns out this is a bit of an unknown so far. Only transportation fuels used within Washington state are covered by the program. But how they will apply that to vessels will be sorted out in the regulatory process before the program goes into effect in 2023. Now, let's move to lessons learned from the California program. First, Kevin Tempest speaks to the focus Washington State put on equity. A prominent thread in the national discussion around the climate solution is addressing the idea of a fair transition to a renewable energy economy. In Washington State, this means addressing the interest of communities historically burdened with industrial air and water pollutions communities where rates of asthma and heart disease are elevated, and life expectancy is shortened. These are called frontline communities. Washington State's Cap and Invest program is tightly joined with clean air initiatives. Here's Kevin Tempest on lessons learned. One is that you really need to embed local impacts from the very beginning very strongly in this, so local, local health air pollution impacts. But taking to heart that California didn't see as much progress as it felt like had been promised in those disadvantaged communities near fence line com- communities, frontline communities on equity and local pollution, embedding that in the program, I think, was a, was a huge lesson learned. Next, Kevin Tempest explains how Washington State will prevent the oversupply of emissions allowances, a problem, as discussed earlier, that has plagued the California system. The other one that really sticks out to me is really avoiding this issue in California where there's a glut of what are called the allowances. So the allowances are basically the tracking mechanism for, you know, how much how much carbon is allowed over time if you're going to hem and stay tight to your targets. And California's definitely had an oversupply problem. It's not unfixable. And there's a lot of, you know, good inputs going in from the stakeholder community back to uh, the California Air Resources Board, et cetera, about this issue. So, so it is fixable, but it's going to probably going to need to be addressed at a certain time. And the mechanism typically in, in CAP is to, to say, you know, hey, we're looking, we set our targets to be a, a target in this year, Washington, for example, 50% reduction between now and 2030. We see that there are too many allowances out in the marketplace right now to be confident that we're going to meet those. And so we're going to offer less, you know, we're going to sell less in future, future auctions. So we're going to hold, hold some back so that, so that we know that the supply matches with the targets and yeah. And, and then the offsets are, are a component of that. So this situation with offsets is really key. And Washington state has made a great improvement over the California system. Here's a simple way to illustrate the Washington state solution. Let's say the state issues 1,000 emission allowances. A refinery decides not to buy at auction all the allowances that it needs to operate. Instead, they opt to buy an offset from an entity that promises to capture methane from a landfill equal to 100 allowances. 
In response, the state of Washington then reduces the total pie of allowances by 100. Now only 900 allowances are available, plus 100 in the form of the offset. That means if the offset turns out not to be effective at capturing methane, the state's total emissions have still stayed within the cap. And if the offset is effective, it represents an additional reduction in carbon emissions and total emissions come in below the cap. Here's Kevin Tempest explaining the Washington state system further. The Washington program is treating offsets differently, yes. How California set up their program was basically under the assumption that offsets absolutely return an emissions reduction somewhere else. So, so hey, I emitted here, but I'm but I did something that cancels those emissions out somewhere else. So those tend to be cheaper, you know, which which helps keep compliance costs down. So that's kind of the first reason for, for offsets. So in Washington, the offsets will basically displace or get rid of the potential to use a, an allowance. So the, the upshot of that is if you use an offset, basically what it's providing in terms of a compliance tool to to, to meet your your obligation on the program is it's it's going to be a little bit cheaper most likely than buying an allowance what it's not doing is assuming there's going to be a one-for-one one or any reduction in emissions from that offset that that wouldn't otherwise happen so because it removes a potential allowance from circulation and doesn't add to the total supply it's saying hey any emissions reduction we get from this offset program is basically additional to what we we're hoping to achieve from the program. It's an added benefit that we're not assuming is cooked into the system. Now, let's move on to the invest part of the Washington State's cap and invest program. What is Washington doing with the revenue? Well, we're looking at somewhere on the order of half a billion to a billion dollars per year of revenue starting to come in in 2023 from the program. Most of that is going to come from a fee to, to purchase allowances, so some sort of, of, of carbon price um, that will be placed on transportation fuels, so on-road fuels. And the biggest portion coming in from transportation fuel also going out to transportation decarbonization. This is what's been termed the carbon emissions reduction account. That doesn't scream transportation to me in the name, but that's what it's earmarked for. And so that's, that's $5.2 billion um, through 2037 or 2038. So that's kind of the time frame that our new transportation package that's being developed is, is going to be on. And that's the biggest source. The other biggest sources, I think, are kind of more broad and they're over overarching on all the money that it's raised. So they're not their own specific account, but this is a minimum of 35% to overburdened communities and uh, up to an additional 10% that can be additive on top of that for tribal supported projects. Yeah, it's been many years and many failures in the making to get something of this ambition done and to set a new standard for, for state action and to keep that competition going to see who can one up their climate ambition while returning great jobs, great local benefits, you know, a more streamlined, well-functioning economy. That's a good, good race to be in. Well, thank you to our guest speakers, Tony Cerna in California with Citizens Climate Lobby and Kevin Tempest with the Low Carbon Prosperity Institute in Seattle. 
learning the ins and outs of carbon policy is a lot to take in. So don't forget that we can also do practical things locally that support the generational shift to clean energy. One of those things is seeing if your local schools are using AK Energy Smart. This is a free K-12 STEM curriculum with hands-on lessons that are Alaska-specific and develop important energy literacy for students and teachers. You can find this on the website for the Renewable Energy Alaska Project, located at alaskarenewableenergy.org. We need our future leaders to have the right tools. For more information about the topics we've been discussing, please visit our website, thefutureoceanpodcast.com. You can also find all six episodes there, or you can listen by subscribing to The Future Ocean on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Future Ocean Podcast is sponsored by the Alaska Ocean Acidification Network and is produced in Kodiak, Alaska, where electricity is generated nearly 100% by renewable energy. Music in this episode is by Chris Ann Sweeney. I'm your host, Maggie Wall.